episode 57 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, If that sounds confusing to you because you already listened to episode 58, you are not going crazy. Uh, We had to do some rescheduling, so the numbers got swapped around. This is episode 57. Um, Today's episode is on the BBC show Call the Midwife, but before we get into that, let's talk to this episode's panel. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, founding member of the CFP, and with me today are new regulars Sarah Davis and Kim Feldman. Hi, Sarah and Kim. Hello. Hello. So let's introduce ourselves to listeners that might be new or old listeners who might not know the two of you. Uh, Sarah, you go first. Hi, well, I'm Sarah Davis, and I'm a librarian in Waco, Texas, and so I, like Kimberly, am a very recent addition to the Christian Feminist Podcast, and I'm super excited to be recording. I love this show, so I'm very excited for this topic. Thanks. Kim, how about you? Hi, uh, I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and I am a PhD candidate at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and a mom of two littles, and I'm doing ministry with my husband in the local community. Thanks, that sounds great. Uh, And I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I, if that name sounds familiar, you might know me because I am married to Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist podcast. We live in Minnetonka, Minnesota, with our two cats, neither of whom uh, seem to be in this room, so maybe you won't hear meowing on this episode like you sometimes do. Uh, I work at Public Radio International in Minneapolis. I'm their audience development manager, uh, which these days means I read a lot of listener email and try to figure out what we can do to get people on opposite sides of lots of issues to understand each other. So uh, lots of lots of fun there. Uh, but to get into the meat of today's episode, we're going to be talking, as I said, about Call the Midwife. Uh, a show that first aired on the BBC and also airs here in the United States on PBS. It tells the story of nurse midwives in the East End of London in the 50s and 60s. Uh, It's been a big hit and uh, is based on a memoir by uh, a woman who did serve in that time and place named Jennifer Worth. And we're going to talk a little bit about the memoir. Sarah, what can you tell us about that book? Well, I have read the first two books of uh, Worth's memoirs. So the first book, which is Call the Midwife, was published in 2002. The two subsequent books were Shadows of the Workhouse, which was published in 2005. And then finally, the last book, Farewell to the East End, was published in 2009. And having read the books, uh, pretty much every everything that happens to the character of Jenny Lee on the television show comes from an instance in the book. And what you end up with is that most of the things that happen to her are all true accounts, very, very accurate, and that a lot of the B or C stories that might be happening with Trixie or Fred or one of those characters, those are frequently, you know, created or written for the show. But the things that actually happened to Jenny, those are all pulled from real life. The show obviously is very, very well uh, recommended. Lots of people really enjoy it. It spent 12 weeks on the bestseller list when it came out in paperback. 
And most of the detailed reviews I've actually found from for the book are actually originally from medical journals. So infant observation, midwifery, midwifery, however you pronounce that today, they have done the most in-depth reviews I could find for the memoirs were actually from uh, medical and nursing journals, which I thought was very interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. And most of the recurring characters are all going to be the same. So Sister Evangeline is Sister Evangeline. Sister Bernadette is there. Most all of the characters are the same. A couple of them are changed. Sister Bernadette does not go off with a the good doctor and get married. I mean, she's a side character, but she is not nearly the major character that she is in the series. Um, also structurally, what you get is you have single characters such as Fred. He'll have an entire chapter devoted to him in the memoir, but he doesn't really appear in any of the stories as she goes on. He's kind of mentioned once, whereas in the show obviously he kind of makes an appearance to do as comic relief every episode but he only actually appears in one chapter that's solely devoted to him but i would say most of the characters feel very real and similar to their tv counterparts nobody felt like oh my gosh chummy was complete you know chummy in the book is not a you know dainty little ballerina no she is she is the same big gregarious posh you know, character. Uh, she is not married, however, at least not married for what we find out in the novels, novels, memoirs. The other thing that, I, that I've noticed is that though they do kind of talk about the faith of the nuns, or I would say they more kind of allude to it in the series, Worth talks about it very, very explicitly in the memoirs and not just that, Oh, there are nuns, but the first thing that sister Julianne says to Jennifer as she comes and is interviewing and is there on the first day. And by the way, the whole instance about her eating the cake and everything that actually happened, that's actually from the memoir is everything we do. Sister Julianne says we do for Christ. We do it because of our faith in Christ, which is much more explicit than if memory serves, they ever really get in the memoirs, the memo or in the TV show, the TV show kind of alludes to it, glances at it, but it's much, much more explicit in the memoir. And in fact, at the beginning, Jennifer talks about how she does not really feel like a believer. Sister Julianne asks, what is her, what is her religion? And she says, Methodist, I guess. And the first book basically ends with her finding faith and what she would say kind of rediscovering her faith and it becoming more meaningful and important to her. Thanks for that really good summary. Um, I, I'm glad to hear that the characters that I love are, are pretty uh, faithful to the, the book versions of themselves, um, though I, I think it's it's interesting to hear you compare the Christianity across the two um, media because I I think one of the reasons that I I love uh, the show very much is that it um, it seems pretty overtly Christian at least compared to other shows on television um, but I'm I'm sure we will uh, we'll talk more about that as this episode progresses. I also um, found that your summary to be very interesting. It's interesting to think about this as both a historical and a cultural artifact. Like it gives us some insight into that historical time period, but it's also through this cultural lens of the creators of the show and um, our current context. So I think it's interesting. And uh, Victoria, I also, one of the things that I love about the show is that it is a positive portrayal of Christianity, which isn't um, generally the case in a lot of uh, media that's out there. Um, so I appreciate that about the show. Well, let's, uh, since you, since you sort of started uh, going in that direction, let's, let's keep going there um, and talk about our experiences with the show. What do we like about it? Why do we like it? Um, what characters stick out to us? Those sorts of things. Uh, Kim, lead us off. 
Sure. Um, so my husband and I are obsessed with all things BBC. We've watched Downton Abbey, MI5, Bletchley Circle, uh, Doctor Who, pretty much anything that we can find. And we were kind of in between shows. We were caught up on everything, and we started um, to try out uh, Call the Midwife. Um, pretty much into the first episode, I realized my husband was not going to be able to to do this show um and he's you know it's not because it's too girly he'll watch Downton Abbey and Bletchley Circle and other you know very feminine shows but um childbirth is a really amazing and beautiful thing which is why documentaries and reality shows and tv shows are about it um but it's also very intimate and raw and the show is very (laughs) very realistic in its portrayal. And um, my husband was a fantastic birthing partner, but even after my second child, he was like, I could not watch you go through that again. It was so hard. And he's totally uncomfortable watching other people go through it, even if it's fictional. Um, But that was okay, because although we like to watch all of our shows together, it was good to have like a show that's mine that I can, when I need to just on my own at night, fold laundry and watch a show, this is what I watch. Um, And I love it. And Um, But I like it not just because of the story and the characters. I like that it kind of delves into social issues in a very thoughtful way, Um, issues of poverty and privilege and racism and misogyny. Um, It gets into all of these issues along with the story. Um, And I do like some of the characters. Uh, I find Sister Monica Jones very endearing, and I can relate a lot to Chummy and her struggles um, as a working mom. So um, there's there's much that I like about this show. Thanks for sharing that. Um, my my experience getting into the show was much the same. Um, Michael and I uh, started watching it together, and because we wanted something um, something kind of nicer. I mean, we've we've watched uh, Breaking Bad and some of The Sopranos and Mad Men, and you know all your kind of angry white dude prestige television that's really popular and I was like I want a show where people love each other and tell each other that they love each other um, and this this fills that void I think in a really nice way but he sometimes has trouble with the birthing scenes as well but I'm uh, I'm not supposed to go now Sarah is supposed to go next so Sarah why do you like the show well I love the show for many reasons but probably mm, the thing I love about it most is, and those of, uh, is that I spent many years as a caseworker for Child Protective Services, and this show is the absolute closest that I've ever seen depicted anywhere in literature, film, movie, television, anywhere, of what it's actually like to to sincerely work with people who are in poverty. Now, obviously, I am not a midwife, and I did not deliver any children or anything like that. But the descriptions that you see in the show and that you read in the book are very, very accurate as to my experience in terms of, oh, so-and-so had a kid again. Guess, guess we're, we're going to be involved with her, with her family for another five and a half months until this baby gets here. Uh, the cyclical poverty that you work with, the large families the going into someone's home, the abuse, some of the, uh, again, some of the racism and social issues that you've talked about are all things that you experience when you're having to do home visits and you're going in there and you're just kind of begging people to let you help them. And they, some of them say yes, and some of them are, are can be happy and grateful for the help. And then some of them cannot stand it and they want you out, but you, you have to be there. And it's not necessarily about the mother, but it's about the safety of that child. And so I just, I loved this show from the very beginning and I really fell in love with it. And I was kind of, I was a call the midwife evangelist uh, in much the same way. I think last summer you had people going around saying, have you seen Stranger Things? You have to watch Stranger Things. Have you seen that? I was going about doing that for this obscure British show that no one had ever heard of. And I I love the amount of kind of grace and love that is in each episode. And I can honestly say that I've never seen any Call the Midwife episode a first time without crying. I cry every time I see an episode for the first time. And there are several that I've seen multiple times and I cry every time. 
because of just the similarities of maybe something I've encountered or just the whole entire spirit of working with those who are in poverty. Um, it's a, it's a unique thing. And this show does it so very well in reaching out and portraying that for others. And I know both of y'all have talked, you know, about, you know, watching with partners. I, I always basically watched it with myself and then I would kind of, I, I would show my mother who also worked for CPS and some of my friends and we'd all kind of go like, oh yeah, that happened to us. Oh yeah, that was similar to what happened with so-and-so. And even though they, they weren't our actual stories of cases we'd done, we we could really relate to the spirit of the show and that, or it was very close to something we'd seen or close to somebody we'd worked with. And so it feels very, very familiar whenever I watch it. And now, even though I haven't done the job in a while, it still kind of takes me back to that spirit of working with those people. That's really cool. That's a perspective I, I hadn't really thought about, but um, I know it's it's always heartening to, to see yourself and, and your experiences in culture like that, especially when you don't expect to. Uh, so I, first of all, when I talk uh, about what I like about this show, would like to offer a blanket apology that it took the Christian Feminist podcast into its third year to talk about Call the Midwife. That is a pretty ridiculous thing. Uh, I'm not sure there's a show on television more made for this podcast to discuss. Um, its priorities are our priorities. It's about deep, trusting, uh, flawed, complex female community, and it treats faith respectfully. It treats faith as uh, important to our lives as having capacity to shape our lives and shape our interactions with each other. So uh, it's really silly that it's taken us this long to do a Call the Midwife episode, but I'm very happy to be doing it. Um, so, so those are the reasons uh, that the show is important to me. And I also want to read some listener comments, because I, I put a call out on the Facebook page, posted a big photo from the show, and said, we're recording a Call the Midwife episode. I'm sure some of you watch. If you do, tell us about it. So we got a few comments. Um, let's see. Uh, fan of the show and of the network, Carter Stepper, uh, says, oh yay, great show. Uh, so he's excited. Hope you're listening, Carter. And we got a couple of other really good comments um, about sort of the content of the show. Uh, Kristen, our intrepid publishing liaison, uh, without whom the network would not exist, we love you, Kristen, says that they won her over at the very beginning of the second episode because the camera cut back and forth between a 14-year-old victim of the sex trade looking to pick up a John and the nuns in the choir chanting the 51st Psalm. Uh, of all the passages in scripture, someone did their homework, Kristen says. So she appreciates the sort of culture-faith integration. And um, we haven't talked about characters in depth yet, but the character that's been mentioned the most in passing uh, in our discussion so far has been Chummy. Uh, and listener Mary says that Chummy is her favorite character because she knows what it's like to be tall and awkward and just want to fit in, and uh, that Chummy always keeps her sense of humor and her individuality, and that she's genuine. Uh, so thanks guys for writing in. Uh, I love Chummy too. Um, Kim and Sarah, do you have favorite characters? It's hard for me to say. Um... I do find Sister Monica Jones um, endearing. I like her little um, quotes and um, little monologues that she does. Um, I also um, also relate a lot to Chummy, as I mentioned before, and I'll talk a little bit about it in the episode I'm going to discuss. I think my favorite is probably going to be the character of Jennifer, because like I said, with with my particular circumstance, I can do a lot of self insertion with her. So she's kind of like my my own personal real life Mary Sue. I just I love how she handles everything. Um, I love all of the younger nurses, and I love the the play that and the interactions they have with the 
the nuns and and the slight differences in how they look at the world and how they treat everyone in terms of uh, especially in the uh, in the books uh the uh the nuns come across as much more kind of spiritual and holistic whereas the nurses in the book are a little more straightforward this is scientific and i feel like you get that also as portrayed in the actual show uh that the nuns are more concerned about kind of the whole person whereas our our younger nurses are a little more just straightforward what's the medical problem and let's just move forward with that. And so I, I like the, the, the differences in how those uh, two different mindsets interact. That is actually a great place to get us into the episode discussion, uh, talking about that relationship between the younger nurses and, uh, and the older sisters. Um, we have each picked an episode that we think um, is important from an intersectional Christian feminist perspective. And uh, we ended up picking uh, episodes from seasons two, three, and four, or series two, three, and four, if I'm going to be appropriately British. Uh, so let's start with Sarah's episode from the second series. Well, so this episode uh, is the first episode of the second season they have a christmas episode and then on netflix this one is counted as like the first of the series and this is one of the episodes that again this is a real thing that happens in the memoir and so this actually happens to uh, jenny lee uh jennifer gets a new patient uh her name is molly brigdell and she's in an abusive relationship her husband uh is very violent towards her she has other children and so when uh, Jennifer goes to make the home visit, she sees that, you know, this house really isn't suitable, what happened. And so she kind of has to do some investigating and bring family members in for help, which, again, is something that I can really relate to with my previous job. And then what you also have at this episode is one of the other younger nurses, uh, Trixie, is kind of struggling against some of the more traditional expectations of the job. So at this point, she is still required to wear a dress on duty. Well, she wants to wear pants. And some of the nuns are not sure about this because that's a little fast. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of pressure put on Trixie that, for those of you who have seen the, uh, the show, know she's kind of the pretty one. She's the flirtatious one. She's the one who will have her hair in curlers or is talking about lipstick and that kind of thing. What you also have in this episode is Sister Evangeline is kind of crusading because there is this new newfangled thing called gas and air, which can provide pain against childbirth. And she kind of does something that I feel like a lot of women do to each other now, which she kind of does this kind of like mommy shaming of, well, they just should grit through it because women have always gritted through it and they should just grit through it because that's what women do. And Trixie and some of the younger nurses are like, no, no, women want pain relief. This is, this is the modern era. We need this. And so there's a, um, there are some generational differences there um, uh, for them working together to try to gain the same outcome. And then eventually what the episode kind of ends up with for Trixie and sister Magdalena is they are called to work, uh, deliver a baby on a ship that's out at the docks. And so they both have to work together and be very creative, even though they have very kind of diametrically opposed personalities. And they find that this young woman uh, is the daughter of the ship captain, and he has not been treating her well. He basically brought his daughter, his adult daughter, onto the ship to kind of a pacify shall we say the sailors so they wouldn't fight with each other and so they don't really know who the father of this child is and so Trixie has to deliver the baby she has to confront the father and so she really grows throughout that episode by overcoming all of these adversities and then Sister Evangelina also has to kind of grow and learns to let some things go and she has to, because she's working with Trixie, she has to learn to trust these younger nurses. And so that's, it's a very fulfilling episode. And then you also have, at the end of this, uh, Jenny's patient, Molly Brignall, you know, she delivers the baby, but she goes back home. Her husband is having her, you know, turn tricks and, and is essentially prostituting her out. And at the very end of the episode, we see that 
the parents' neglect becomes too much. They have left the children there. The house catches fire. The children are rescued. Both of the parents are put in jail, and the children are given to Molly's mother, who throughout the episode is shown trying to help and support Molly, uh, but is systematically being cut out by her husband because he obviously wants his wife to be as isolated as possible and only depend on him. And so one of the reasons I love this episode is it has so many different things going for it in terms of different types of struggles that women have to overcome. And so you see characters like Trixie overcoming, uh, you have characters like Trixie who are kind of overcoming the struggles that are in front of them. And, but you also see how easy it is with the character of Molly that to just kind of let it go and just, they, they succumb to their struggles. And so I think it's very noble for the show to show both in the same episode, it would be very easy to try to make it a very uplifting show and change what actually happened. Like, oh, well, she got everything together and left her husband and moved in with her mother. That would be a very easy thing for the show to do. It would be, it would be very kind of spiritually uplifting, but it wouldn't be as cathartic. And so I, I just applaud the show for, for showing those differences in the same episode and really emphasizing that. And... I also enjoy how much, again, the uh, you have the character of Trixie trying to overcome the stereotype of that the nurses are putting on her. So they're saying, hey, you need to make sure that you have sensible shoes and that you wear this dress. And she's saying, I can do this job wearing slacks. I can do this job with my hair looking pretty. I can do this job wearing makeup. And so it's actually a bit of a reversal of what we actually traditionally think of that argument we think of women saying like oh no 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 i don't have to be pretty i i can be i can be just as good as the men but she trixie is really trying to emphasize her femininity in this job when you have some of the sisters trying to kind of take some of that like feminine identity away from her if that makes sense um what about y'all did were y'all able to kind of catch up with this episode what was what were y'all's feelings of the different struggles that women have in this episode the the thing that stuck um, with me the most was I had forgotten um, the A plot. Actually, I, I'd forgotten the Molly Brignall plot, um, and and just remembered the one on the ship. So um, to to put them together in the same episode and see um, essentially two men who are responsible for the well being of two women. Um, both prostitute them, but end up in two different places, um, sort of emotionally and, and redemption wise, um, I, I thought was made for really interesting television, but also like you were saying, gave a, a real humanity and emotional depth to the ways that kind of sometimes the system wins and sometimes the system loses and, you know, sometimes people end up in bad places. Um, but in both cases you had, uh, the midwives really working hard to, to establish a supportive community and to show, um, those women who are being controlled by other people that they possessed agency and humanity. Yeah. I think that was one of the things that stood out to me, um, as well was the humanity of these women and their backstories and their character. Like, um, it made it really hard to judge them for their actions or the situations that they were in, um, when you know how they got there and, um, and do you know the circumstances? And so I, that's one of the things, you know, throughout the show that it really portrays the humanity of people who um, are in difficult circumstances. Uh, is there anything else the two of you would like to say about that episode or should we move on to the next one? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, uh, I will take this one since I uh, had the season three episode. So I'm going to talk about season three, episode five, um, which may be labeled as, as episode six on your Netflix, um, depending on how your Christmas episodes are numbered. So this episode 
begins at um, a home for people with disabilities called St. Gideon's. Uh, and we see Cynthia there with one of her girl guides, a teenage girl named Cheryl. And the uh, the people who live at St. Gideon's are having a dance. Um, they've gotten to pick out their fancy party clothes. They're very excited. Um, and they're going to a dance. And uh, for me, as uh, a person with a disability, seeing that dance, like, I might cry now. Um, but the first time I saw the episode, I just wept openly because there are probably two dozen actors with disabilities uh, in that shot. A number of them have uh, Down syndrome. Some of them have uh, cerebral palsy, which is what I have. Some of them have muscular dystrophy. Um, and, and those are just the ones I could pick out. So this this show um, really does explore um, what it would have been like to have a disability in England in the 50s. So at the dance, we meet some of the people of St. Gideon's, and um, mostly we meet Sally, who is a young woman with Down syndrome, and uh, eventually we discover that she is pregnant, and uh, both her parents and the sisters and midwives at Nanata's house are very upset by this because their initial assumption, everyone's initial assumption, is that she can't possibly know what's happening to her and she has been raped. Well, it turns out that uh, Sally has uh, a boyfriend, a lovely young man with cerebral palsy named Jacob, and this is a consensual sexual relationship. So that's the thing that sticks out to me the most about the A-plot of this episode, is that though this is a show that is progressive for its time, um, I like that it does not um, sacrifice period for politics. Like, in the 50s, you know, people with disabilities would have been in a home they would have been separated from society, though they are treated well at St. Gideon's. Um, and, you know, people, well, let's be honest, lots of people now have trouble attributing normal human sexual desire to people with disabilities. Ask me how I know. <laughs> but that certainly would have been true in the 50s. So I like that that is worked on and that some of the uh, midwives and nuns sort of come around to that, but they don't start from that place. And I think it's really honest. Uh, so that's that's the... Actually, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't stop there. Um, Sally's baby is stillborn and it's very sad. But she and Jacob end up uh, having a relationship um, eventually, though her parents do object to it at the beginning. Um, there's a lot of language used that I think would never be used today. Sally's um, father throws around the word normal a lot, saying she's not normal. Um, that's a, a word that the disability community today frowns upon. Sally is also, I think I counted three times, um, referred to as mongoloid. Um, which is a, a word that used to be used for people with Down syndrome, though one of the usages it should be noted is by Sally's mother, and she's saying um, that she always hated her daughter being referred to uh, as a Mongol because those people, you know, live over there. They're foreign and different, and Sally is hers and she belongs to her, um, and so she won't, you know, other her daughter by talking about her that way. Um, so that's an, an interesting uh, exception, I think. So that is the A-plot. And um, the the B-plot has to do with Sister Evangelina's Jubilee. Her, um, actually don't know which Jubilee it is. I assumed um, 25th. Uh, do, do either of you know which anniversary it was? I presumed it was 25th because based off of some of the time frames where they said that, oh, well, you know, she served in the war and then she became a nut. Like some of it, it seemed like, oh, it has to be 25. So they didn't give a specific date, but they, some of the, the events they talked about, I was like, oh, it could only be the 25th. 
Okay, so we'll go with that. Uh, her 25th Jubilee, and um, she has said that she does not want the standard celebration. She's very against it. And at the same time, lots of food starts going missing from the Nanata's kitchen. Come to find out, um, both of those things are related. And Sister Evangelina's brother um, is homeless and an alcoholic and she has been um, sneaking him food from their kitchens in order to care for him and also to mend her relationship with him. Uh, they had a falling out because he didn't think she should become a nun and she didn't like the direction that his life is going. Um, so uh, the episode ends with uh, him showing up at her jubilee very quietly um, and, and they sort of exchange love with one another. Um, and what, what I love the most about that plot is again how incredibly human it is. Um, she does not hide her embarrassment at his life choices or her anger. They exchange words um, and very human emotions, but um, she feels spiritually um, that she needs to meet his needs. And she, um, as Christ uh, tells us often works, meets his physical needs so that he's more open to having her meet his kind of more spiritual and metaphysical needs after that. So those are the two main plots. Um, if we have time, maybe we can talk a little bit more about uh, Timothy Turner's polio as it, it ties into the larger disability plot, but let's just um, let's just stick to those two. Uh, do you two ladies have thoughts about um, this? Let, let's start with the with the a plot. This episode's treatment of disability. I was extremely pleased to see it because again, even though, Obviously, the uh, those individual actors, you know, they have they have lived in a, a time where hopefully uh, they have been treated at a in a more humane level. I, I felt like that what you end up with is when you're watching the dance, there's a sense of it seems very and I know you just said that they don't like this word, but like, oh, this seems so normal. It could be like any school dance. It could be a youth group. dance. It could be any any dance and so that was always um when i when i remember watching this episode that's what really struck me because even as somebody who knows okay i shouldn't do this i shouldn't other in my mind it's it's there and it is very refreshing for the show to take it in a, and just portray it as the show doesn't seem to portray this as being different it the show Again, with the preparation, with them being excited, with them dancing, the show never takes a tone of this. These people are particularly different. It's and it just allows the viewer to make that connection or make that judgment on their own, which I particularly like, uh, especially because, again, later on when you have the, the kind of the discovery of the the pregnancy and everything, everybody does make the assumption, okay, there was, there was an sexual assault here. And again, the characters make that, but I don't think through any, but the show doesn't ever imply it again. So you're making the same leaps of judgment that the characters are, but the show never actually portrays it that way in terms of their, you know, Jacob are the main love interest. He's never shown in a dark and intimidating way. He's never shot in a way that makes him seem, shady or anything like that and so it really just allows the viewer to make their own judgments about the situation which i like it doesn't it doesn't shoot it or you know the music or the lighting doesn't really imply anything it lets me observe everything and make the judgment on my own right and even going back to the sort of setup for the dance um there's that really quick conversation between cynthia and cheryl when they're serving punch and cheryl says uh, I feel sorry for them. And Cynthia says, I don't. And that's the end of the conversation. And I just, I love that. Yeah, I was going to mention that as well. Um, I I do love uh, Cynthia and I, I love um, just her simple joy 
and watching them dance and enjoy themselves and and her response to that statement. Um, in education, we talk a lot about difference versus deficit and that there are that people are different, but we, we can't automatically assume a deficit. Um, and I don't know, I felt that coming through the episode. Um, I, I, my heart did break for Jacob, um, not in a, I, you know, feel sorry for him way, but in a, uh, just, he's just such a likable character. Um, he is just so respectful and, um, hardworking and, you know, he realizes, um, just the situation that he's in and goes on that incredibly, you know, journey to leave that his home to go to where Sally is. And, um, just, I just love his character. Um, and so that was very heartbreaking to watch what he went through in that whole situation. But, um, yeah, I felt, I felt the same way that it was a very respectful treatment. Yes. I, Oh, poor Jacob. I have so many feelings about um about his situation, um especially because we have the same uh we have the same disability and the the actor um himself does too. And so that whole time when he was on the bus and when he was walking up the hill um and when he had had a muscle spasm and couldn't hold the teacup right but didn't want to ask for help. Um, I mean, I, I, I literally felt those experiences in my body because I've, I've had those experiences, you know, I've, I've been, um, sort of ashamed that I can't sometimes do things the way other people can do them. Um, I, I know very well what a muscle spasm feels like. So yes, to, to have him go through all that and then feel the sort of very real human heartbreak when, um, when they're separated from each other. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of emotion. Yeah. Uh, so would we like to say anything about the other plot? What about, um, sister of Angelina and her brother? Yeah. Thing that about that that I again that I, I find very interesting is that that show or that episode really really builds and the emotional payoff is because I've been watching Sister Evangelina for the past two seasons and I know who she is and I've seen her interact with other people in poverty and I've seen her interact with other people who are alcoholics or and so I've seen the absolute immense depth of compassion that this woman has for others and that if she saw anyone else in the same situation she would just be moved with absolute pity and love but the fact that it is her brother there's this sense of kind of withdrawal of like oh there's more shame there and she doesn't feel the pity that I know she would feel for any other character because I've seen her interact with those other characters in other episodes. And so to me, that was really kind of interesting that the relationship changes how you are going to interact with someone because you have different expectations, you have different um, emotions and you have more history. And so she, yeah, she, she just interacts with him in a completely different way. And so the emotional payoff for that all is because I I've seen her be this other person with this immense love and show that immense love. And so having her show it to our family member, but still having that, it kind of be tinged with that sense of, you know, almost shame of this is what my family member did. I, I find extremely interesting and very compelling. And really real too, to me. I mean, I, I think that we, because we wrap ourselves up so in the relationships we have with other people you know she feels like she has failed her brother and she doesn't want people to see that particularly on a day that's supposed to be about celebrating her and her compassion and her contributions to the community and all those things uh all those things you mentioned i i think that her reticence to share all of herself like that is is such a normal human emotion are we ready to move on to the next episode? I am. I think, I think we are. Okay. It is in series four, and it is the Christmas special. And yes. uh, Kim, I'll let you talk about it. 
Yeah, so this episode centers largely on two young women who are pregnant outside of marriage and are spirited off on a bus to a mother and baby house where these women are, quote, kept hidden away from society's gaze, end quote. Um, The house turns out to be a very desolate place with a matron who treats the girls with very little dignity and respect. Um, She even uses trickery to um, kind of spirit the babies away when they're going to be taken for adoption so that she can avoid uncomfortable confrontation with the um, mothers. And I feel that this is kind of true to the experience that some women had because of the taboo of pregnancy outside of marriage um, at that time. Um, there's even an investigation going on right now in the news of a home, in, a mother and baby home in Ireland where something like 800 babies um, were found in mass graves there. And just a very um, challenging situation, I think, for a lot of women who are in these homes. Uh, in this case, one of the girls that the episode centers on, Avril, decides to blow the whistle um, and take it upon herself to to get rid of the matron, to secure adequate health care for the mothers at the home. Um, and that's when the nurses from Nanotna's house come in to help Avril and the other girls to turn the house around, to clean it up, to get the electricity running, um, to make sure that they're getting adequate health care. And um, ultimately, that particular sub story um, ends with Avril. Um, well, first of all, the Avril and the nurses throw a party that kind of, that's kind of the turning point where the humanity and the dignity of the girls is kind of restored and um, the girls are actually kind of happy. It's a, a Christmas celebration. Um, and then Avril, she has her baby and she originally wants nothing to do with this baby. Um, but after this great scene with Chummy, um, she discusses how really what she was searching for was love when she was, um, had sex with this young man. And Chummy says, you know what? that's totally understandable. You were looking for love and the end result was this baby. And sometimes love comes in unexpected packages. And she has this moment where she tells Avril that, you know, there's no law that says you can't keep this baby. And Avril says, you know what? You're right. There isn't. And she decides to give this baby the love that she never received from her own mother. Um, And for her, that's a huge and difficult decision to make. That's going to involve a lot of sacrifice, but it was, the right decision for her and it was a completely valid decision. Meanwhile, there's this other girl that the show has been following who has this moment with her mother holding her first grandchild saying, you know what, you can change your mind. You don't have to give this baby up for adoption. And the very wise 16 year old girl says, you know, that might be what I want most right now is to keep the baby, but that's not going to be best for me or the baby down the line. And, um, you know, for her, that's a huge sacrifice and something that's very difficult to do, but an equally valid choice for her. And so just exploring that, those different um, approaches to unwanted pregnancy and the reality of how difficult either decision is to keep the baby or to give it up for adoption, I think is really poignant. And it's kind of brought to a culmination with Sheila and Dr. Turner, who had recently adopted a baby and it's Christmas time, just realizing um, the sacrifice that another mom had to make for them to have this joy of this new baby in their lives. And so they decide to write a letter to her um, to thank her for allowing them the honor to have this baby in their home. And um, so just a really interesting treatment of unwanted pregnancy and adoption and um, that I thought was really poignant and beautiful. And the subplot that's going along with it is um, Nurse Cynthia struggling with her call to vocational uh, to a religious vocation, um, and there's this interesting moment where Trixie is talking about how abnormal life in the convent is, and um, and Cynthia saying, oh, "You know, I don't think that there's any grief involved in it. I th- feel like I'm on the edge of a great happiness." And that's when Trixie realizes that Cynthia is considering this, and um, 
Cynthia is really struggling and seeking out counsel from s- sister Julianne, but she, she's really struggling with um, that she feels like she doesn't have enough to give to Christ that in exchange for his love. And that gets worked out for her as she's ministering to this couple that has been turned out of a mental institution um, when the mental institution closes and the woman thinks she's pregnant, but upon examination, the doctor realizes that she's had both a lobotomy and a tubal ligation without her consent. And she has to explain to the woman that she's not only is she not pregnant, but she's never going to become pregnant. And, um, you know, there's this heart wrenching scene with her and her partner and her partner says, you know, she's like, don't say you love me. I have nothing to give you. And he says, no, I mean, I, you give me what you can and I'll give you what I can. And that'll be enough because we love you each other. And that for sister or for nurse Cynthia, she realizes that all she has to give to Christ is her love and that's enough in her life. Um, and, um, just really, powerful, just both the decision that she's making to go into religious vocation and the decision that these young women are making um, about their um, unwanted pregnancies uh, are just an interesting juxtaposition. Um, Interestingly, I think they parallel an earlier episode. um, I think it's episode 2.5, but I'm not sure about the woman who's older and already has eight children and, um, you know, has an unwanted pregnancy that ends in an abortion. And that episode also has sister Bernadette struggling with her crisis of faith, which is actually a crisis of calling of realizing that maybe she's not called to the vocational life. Um, so th- I found the, both of those episodes to be intriguing. Um, and then I just want to mention too, this episode has a smaller, tiny subplot of chummy struggling, um, it's like a thread that's been pulled since earlier in series three when Chubby Chummy is trying to get used to her role as a housewife and realizes she's not cut out for it and that she wants to go back to work. But in this episode, she is always doing more than one thing and I could so relate to it. Um, you know, when she's helping her husband study for his test, she's also sewing costumes for the community play. Um, and when she's on the bus going to work, she's sewing the costume and then she can't make it home that night because she gets snowed in at the mother and baby house. And just that feeling of kind of letting people down and, um, always doing multiple things at one time, but not quite getting it all done and not doing the things you know you want to be doing or need to be doing. But at the same time, throughout the episode, she is completely cheerful. And I love that because, you know, her husband is always supportive. The situation is hard, but it's, she's still happy and it's, it's still good. And that's kind of how I feel about my, you know, struggles to, for work-life balance as a working mom. So, um, just so many things in this episode that are just very realistic and poignant portrayals of the female experience. So, um, that's why I had to talk about this episode. Were there any things that you guys that stood out to you in these this episode? Uh, definitely the chummy work life balance stuff. Um, Any time it pops up in the series, I um, I have a lot of feelings. Um, it is e- even though I I don't have children, um, I, I still sometimes feel like between work and marriage, it's uh, like you said, you're always letting someone down. Something's always dropping. Um, you can never give your best to one thing. So seeing um, how much uh, Chummy and, and Peter, uh, who is just, oh, Peter, he's such a lovely husband, um, how, how supportive they are of one another and how much, you know, they say, well, this isn't perfect, but, you know, it's it's ours and we're, we're doing the best we can. I, um, I, I like that subplot a lot. They are wonderful. Sarah, did you have any thoughts? Uh, no, none specifically over this episode that I don't think we've already addressed. I, I guess the one thing that I will say, and I feel like I say this constantly on this particular episode, is, again, this one really kind of hit home for me with this kind of like young mothers and them deciding whether they are going to do with their children. That's that's a conversation I've had with teenage mothers. And so having... And so, and again, I think it's very good that we have, we have 
two different decisions that are made. One mother saying like, you know, I, I think I can do this. And another saying like, you know, I would really like to, but that's the selfish de- decision. The better decision for the child is to put the child up for adoption. And so again, seeing those two different decisions is really beneficial because in our current world of everything, you know, can be very black and white to, to see the, the amount of emotion that a mother puts into that decision either way that it is it is rarely if ever made lightly I think that they they, they tackle that with an appropriate amount of respect I agree I, I love that the show um, does two things it treats both of those decisions as equally valid and it treats both of them as um, as important as not entered into lightly I, I think that it doing both things is, is really responsible I feel like that's true for a lot of the decisions that that we have to make as women. Um, you know, there's always a level of sacrifice and, you know, there's always a level of blessing in all the different decisions that we make, whether it's these decisions these women were making about their children or the decision to, to go back to work as a mom or even the decision uh, for Cynthia and her calling, um, you know, there's there's sacrifice and blessing in all of those decisions. So I think that that was a really neat thing that these three stories were woven together. Um, I also like that for the choice of vocation for Cynthia, um, I liked that her going into the convent um, was treated not as a last resort. She had a career. She could have continued being a midwife, um, but that, that, that she was really answering that call, that spiritual call, which was really um, nicely done. And it wasn't seen as something that was sad or um, depressing or hard. You know, it was something that was also done with joy, um, even though she took it very seriously. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great point, that the show treats that as valid and important, just as it treats um, Sister Bernadette's parallel choice to leave the order and, and marry Dr. Turner as as um, not entered into lightly and valid, too, since we're talking about sort of pairs of decisions. Definitely. I, I really like that as well. So we're, um, we're coming up on an hour here, so I think this would be a good place to transition into our third and final segment of this and every episode, the passing on segment where we give you recommendations. Kim, what do you have for our listeners? So uh, you started this trend a couple episodes ago of recommending an experience. I forgot to mention that I have a slight obsession with nuns in general. Um, My great aunt was a nun. I um, find them fascinating. Uh, But we are so blessed in our uh, little town to have a convent tucked away in a pocket right along a, a state park uh, about 10 or 15 minutes from my house. It's the Little, sis- the little Sisters of the Poor. Um, I'm getting that wrong, I think. But this beautiful property, this wonderful stone building with hardwood floors, it's just gorgeous. And um, the nuns there, part of their ministry is that they allow women to come there on private spiritual retreat. And they have cells set aside for that. And you are given a cell with a, a little little twin bed and a, a glider and a little dresser. It's just small and cozy and clean and perfect. And um, you get to stay there and they have a little living room just set aside for us that are staying there and a little dining room for us and they bring us our food and they do ask us to wash our dishes but like as a mom to only have to wash my own dishes and not cook or prepare food for three pe- for four people and uh, clean up for four people it's all such a blessing the property is gorgeous and we can just walk around and um, do our own thing there. We are allowed to participate in the hours of prayer. Um, and uh, even though I'm not Catholic anymore, um, they still are very open and inviting. Um, they actually, my husband runs retreats at their guest house there for people from our church, and they love my husband. Um, so we have a good relationship with them. And I'm just fascinated that they have given themselves to this life. Um, and they really see prayer as their work. And um, so to be able to participate 
in that, in the hours of prayer, they're praying like every three hours they go in and pray and to get to participate in that, um, the rhythm of their life and community there is such a blessing. Um, so I, I have, I will link to it, I think in the show notes, I wrote a blog post about, um, I think it's two, two pieces on my husband's blog about, um, just that experience. And I highly recommend that you seek out, um, they're usually spiritual communities, um, that would allow that type of retreat there. Um, so it's not something you might think about, but I highly recommend it. Thanks. Uh, that, that sounds really wonderful. I know I've been, um, on a similar retreat to, uh, a Benedictine monastery near my house and, uh, it, it is a really rewarding, uh, lovely experience. Uh, Sarah, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is a lovely documentary called Babies, and it is on Netflix at, at the moment. And so it is absolutely adorable. The whole premise of this documentary is that it follows four babies from basically their mother. We see their mothers preparing for birth and this, the steps that they take and basically follows each uh, infant and their and nuclear family throughout the child's first year of life. There is absolutely no dialogue. Uh, you sometimes will hear someone talking kind of in the background, but it's there's no voiceover narration at all. It's just straight observation. And you have, with these four children, you have two that are from westernized industrial large cities. So you have a, you have Hattie, a child a, who is uh, growing up in San Francisco. You have Mari, who is growing up in Tokyo. And then for the children from the two children who are from Namibia and Mongolia, I will not attempt to pronounce their names because there's no way I could do it correctly. But one of the things that I love is just seeing the sheer difference and the breadth of culture in how different people raise their children. And I think that's one of the things that I also really love about Call the Midwife is there's this foreignness to watching how these people raise their children and oh you're just allowed to leave your baby in the stroller outside that seems so incredibly foreign and so incredibly different to us now and so seeing how these children from the different cultures are raised is extremely compelling the babies are very adorable and it's they're just you get all these adorable moments from the life of these four children and it's, it's a joy to watch and it's very easy to watch. Uh, you have to physically be in there watching the room. You can't be in the other room doing something because like I said, there is no narration, but you get to see these children learn to crawl. You get to see them take their first steps and you get to see their interaction with their parents, their siblings and the world around them. And I think that's one of the things that Call the Midwife does very well. It's not just about that infant, but it's also about the entire family. And I think Babies does a very good job of showing the how the family interacts with that child in the first year of life. And it's just adorable and extremely compelling. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, I saw that documentary a few years ago and, and really enjoyed it. I found it um, really cute and, and really educational as well. So in continuing my, uh, I guess, mini theme this episode of talking about a uh, culture that explores what it's like to live with a disability, uh, I am going to recommend uh, my new favorite show and possibly my new favorite thing in all the world. Um, it's a, a new sitcom called Speechless on ABC, uh, which is about the DeMeo family, uh, mom and dad and three kids, the eldest of which... Um, has cerebral palsy and is nonverbal, and um, this show is the closest thing I have ever seen on television to my own experience of moving through the world, though uh, my CP is not as severe as JJ's. Um, I just, I love this show, I love this family, um, they're funny, they make jokes about disability that I don't think anybody who hasn't sort of lived with it and around it could make. Uh, jokes that are actually hilarious. Uh, they love each other. The whole family are rounded characters. Uh, really, watch watch Speechless. Just watch it. It's wonderful. Uh, it makes my life better. Great show. 
Oh, yay! Glad, glad to hear that somebody other than me is watching it. I'm excited for a new recommendation. Thanks. Great. Uh, and that's going to wrap us up. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. We'd also like it if you'd go rate us on iTunes. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. For Sarah Davis and Kim Feldman, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss a, an upcoming conference on women in ministry called She is Called. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>